0: It's already been said. Uh, Happy Father's Day. Um, Actually, it depends on what country you're from. Um, Father's Day uh, falls on many different uh, times of the year, depending on uh, which country uh, that you're from. Uh, It's interesting that uh, Greg, when he spoke on Mother's Day, uh, Mother's Day is kind of, most countries are on one particular day. And when Greg was talking about uh, how commercialized that Mother's Day has become, it. they did a study about Father's Day, and this was a study uh, in America many uh, many years ago, but the study is they found out that it was on Mother's Day they had the highest volume of phone calls on that particular day throughout the whole year. And the study went on to say that on Father's Day they had another high volume of calls, but they were collect calls. <laughs> that's, that's before you know, free cellular phones and different things. So, but I don't know what that means, um, that type of things. So, um, well, you may remember last year, I was speaking on Father's Day, and uh, we talked about a lot of things about responsibility of fatherhood. Uh, we talked about, uh, even if you're not a father, uh, you know, a spiritual father where you can be an uncle uh, to someone and a mentorship in those areas and stuff. Uh, we talked about building into the next generation and, but this morning, I want to take a look at, at a different kind of angle, not so much as important as it is in terms of fathers and building into the next generation. Uh, you know, relating to our earthly father and our heavenly father. You see, every person in this room has something in common. We've all had a father, we've all had a dad. And depending on what kind of home that you grew up in and background, you get a wide spectrum. You know, some of us maybe grew up in a, a loving home, uh, maybe a Christian home, and then you got the father at the other end of the spectrum. Maybe some of us grew, grew up in an abusive home, and you got all those in between there uh, types of things. And uh, there's a passage in Scripture that we're going to be taking a look at that I think it, it's really interesting. You know, the Bible is is interesting in the fact that it's brutally honest, and and telling stories of real people with real issues, uh, you know, growing up here. And uh, this family uh, lived in Israel about a thousand years BC. Uh, It was from the tribe of Benjamin. The family is uh, of Kish. We're gonna take a look at Saul, the first king of Israel, and also Saul and his relationship with Jonathan. And I think it's a fascinating study to look at how Uh, You know, the title of this sermon is kind of not always like father, like son. You know, that's an American, uh, I guess like, like an English phrase in a sense that a lot of times the father, you know, like father, like son. The son has qualities, maybe physical, maybe behavior, different things. But as we look at this, this son is not like the father. And I think it's a fascinating study. We're going to kind of quickly highlight some of the points on that. And then after that, I'm going to share some personal things in terms of my uh, growing up as well here. 1 Samuel 13, uh, verse 1 says, Saul was 40 years old when he became, uh, began to reign, and he reigned uh, 32 years over Israel. I'm reading from the New American Standard uh, Version here. And then we know that uh, it's recorded that Saul had five children. He had uh, three sons. The oldest was Jonathan, and he was the heir um, uh, to the throne. Uh, he was a prince, a leader of the army. He had two, two daughters. The youngest is uh, Michael, uh, who would later become David's wife. And it's a period of war with the Philistines who dominated Israel. Uh, Saul's reign as king is characterized as, as one not necessarily trusting, uh, trusting in the Lord. Uh, and in chapter 13, there's kind of a battle that's brewing here. Israel only had maybe about 3,000 men. Uh, The Philistines had about 36,000 men, and they're on these two different plateaus kind of facing off each other. And what's happening is uh, Saul's looking around. All of a sudden, the Israelites are pretty intimidated with all these Philistines, and they're starting to hide in caves and bushes, and basically it's mass desertion at this point. So what Saul ends up doing is he was supposed to wait for seven days by the prophet Samuel told him to wait before we do the sacrifice in terms of seeking the Lord. Well, Saul just took things into his own hands. He assumed the role of the priesthood and then uh, God began to see that this man is not following after his own heart here. Later in chapter 14, uh, we're gonna kind of compare the foolishness of Saul with the faith of Jonathan. Chapter 14 is Jonathan is the initiating warrior. Uh, he's with his armor bearer. And it's kind of interesting is you look in scripture, the only people who had swords or actually weapons was the king, Saul, and Jonathan is an armor bearer. The rest of the army had like plowshares or different types of things. Uh, uh, they didn't have all the equipment that the Philistines had. Well, anyway, Jonathan has initiation. He says, hey, to my armor bearer, he says, let's go and let's find out if um, uh, they've got is he's, he's with us. And so basically they attack an outpost and killing about 20 uh, Philistine soldiers. This causes a panic, a ripple effect through the whole army. And Saul's looking over there and saying, what's, who's going, on, what's going on here? And different things. And then all of a sudden, Israel joins into the battle. and There's a whole route at this point. And then, uh, Okay. Later on in 14, uh, Saul gives kind of a foolish order saying that, I want no one to eat anything or taste anything until sundown, until I'm avenged. And there's, there's a principle uh, for any of those who've been in the, in the, the army or the military. Uh, actually, it was made by Napoleon Bonaparte. It says an army marches on its stomach. And what was happening to Israel here is they were kind of wearing out. Well, Jonathan didn't hear this command by Saul, this foolish order. And Jonathan kind of finds some honey in the woods and he kind of dips and eats it and he kind of gets rejuvenated. And then he says that uh, the fact that Israel wasn't able to replenish its uh, uh, physical stamina there, that they weren't able to conquer as much of the Philistines at this point. And so there's another confrontation between Saul and his son Jonathan at this point. Chapter 17 uh, in Samuel, uh, this is where David increases in prominence when he kills Goliath. And then looking in uh, uh, chapter 18 of uh, Samuel, this is where Jonathan and David really begin a close relationship. This is after uh, David when he kills Goliath, chapter 18, verses 1 through 4. Now, it came about when he finished speaking to Saul, that's David, that the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David, and Jonathan loved him as himself. And Saul took him on that day and did not let him return to his father's house. Then uh, Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as himself. And Jonathan stripped him of himself as his robe uh, and gave it to David, his armor, including his sword and his bow and his belt. You know, Jonathan is essentially giving all these things of his royalty, his, his sign of authority, giving it over to David. He recognizes David as the next king. It's not, what, not sure at what point that Saul realizes that David's been anointed, but Saul, you see his jealousy already. You know, Jade, uh, uh, David is in the court there and they're singing David's praises more than Saul, all and he gets really jealous. And uh, there's two points where David was originally brought in to play music for Saul because Saul was being tormented by an evil spirit and David was skilled in, as a musician. When David played, Saul was soothed. And there's two points uh, in Scripture where Saul, he always seemed to have a spear in his hand, and he, w- he threw it at David. Um, I'm just thinking that back then worship leaders, uh, it was kind of like a little bit more um, kind of dangerous, because if you didn't please the king or something, you'd have a spear thrown at you. So, Yeah. <laughs> well, David is sent away with the army, um, and Saul is hoping that he'll be killed and stuff. Um, then in 1 Samuel uh, chapter 20. Uh, This is where things kind of come to a head between the relationship between Saul and his father. Uh, Saul is getting angry. He's trying to find ways to get rid of David, uh, to kill him. And uh, we're coming up on the new moon feast here. David, being part of the royal court, is expected to be here, to be eating at Saul's table. And uh, so Jonathan and David devise a plan where Jonathan's gonna find out about his father's reaction to David and whether it's safe or not for him to return. And so they have David uh, hiding in the field here. So in chapter 20, verses uh, 24 to 34, it says, so David hid in the field when the new moon came and the king sat down to eat food. And the king sat down on his seat, as usual, by the wall. When Jonathan rose up and Abner sat down by Saul's side, but David's uh, place was empty. Nevertheless, Saul did not speak anything that day for he thought, well, it's an accident. He's not clean, surely he's not clean. And it came about the next day, the second day of the new moon, that David's place was empty. So Saul said to Jonathan, his son, why has the son of Jesse not come to the meal, uh, either yesterday or today? Then Jonathan answered to Saul, said David earnestly asked to leave to go to Bethlehem, for he said, please let me go since our family has a sacrifice in the city and uh, my brother has commanded me to attend. And now, if I have found favor in your sight, please let me uh, get away, that I may see my brothers, for this is the reason uh, he has not come to the king's table. Then Saul's anger burned against Jonathan uh, and said to him, "Your son, you son of a perverse, rebellious woman, do I not know that you are choosing the son of Jesse to be your own shame and to the shame of your mother's nakedness? For as long as the son of Jesse lives on earth, neither you nor your kingdom will be established. Therefore now send him, bring him to me, for he must surely die. But Jonathan answered to Saul, his father, and said to him, why should he put, be put to death? What has he done? Then Saul hurled, hurled a spear at him to strike him down, so Jonathan knew that his father had decided to put David to death. Then Jonathan arose from the table in fierce anger, and he did not eat the food on the second day of the new moon, for he was grieved over David because of his father had dishonored him. This came to a point here where uh, Jonathan's recognized his father is out to kill David here. And and Saul is being so insecure, he's making foolish choices, he's being rejected by the Lord, and yet um, there's a split here in this relationship. So this is a difficult parent-child relationship on that. And maybe some of us has kinda come from, from things like that. There's no mention of Jonathan in the next uh, several chapters, except one, uh, one, one of the chapters, that's in uh, chapter 23, where, where Jonathan meets David one more time. And where I want to focus in on is the last things that are mentioned about Jonathan in chapter 31 of 1 Samuel, in 31 verses 2 and then verse 6. And the Philistines overtook Saul and his sons, and the Philistines killed Jonathan and Abinadab and Mal- Malchua, and the sons of Saul. Verse six, thus Saul died with his three sons, his armor bearer and all the men um, on that day together. Despite the differences that Saul and Jonathan had together, uh, it doesn't talk about, scripture doesn't talk about you know, what happened later in those uh, several chapters in between there, but I was encouraged by Jonathan at the very end of his life, he was there next to his dad honoring his dad in battle, where his dad needed him most at that point, and then up, they end up both being killed at this point. And we just quickly looked at Jonathan his life, but it's, it's interesting just seeing, you know, some of us, as I mentioned, may have come from a good home, some of us may come from a difficult home. We don't have a choice in terms of the home that we were born in, but we do have choices in terms of what we're what to choose to do things. And some of us may be a first-generation Christians, um, you may not have had a Christian home growing up, and now you became a Christian later in life. I really I appreciated, um, you know, uh, Candy's testimony where now she has come to a relationship with Christ and she has a, a chance to to change the next generation a- impacting them. And so that may be, you know, some of you here today. Personally, I grew up in a divided home. Uh, my dad was not a believer. He didn't come from that kind of background. He came from a very difficult background. Uh, he died, uh, his mother died when he was three years old. Uh, my grandfather was an alcoholic. And so my mom was a believer at that time. So I grew up in kind of a divided home. My mom would bring us to church, uh, us kids to church, you know, kind of grabbing by the ear and stuff. But growing up, I didn't have a male model of what it was to be a biblical man or in terms of biblical Christianity. It wasn't until college till I began to understand that more. Uh, I'm glad to say that my dad did become a Christian. Uh, This was at the end of my college when I graduated. He taught me a lot of things about hard work and responsibility. He sacrificed a lot to provide um, for our family. And there was a caring side for my dad. Uh, He was very nurturing in terms of any of us got sick or injured or so. Um, When I grew up, I had so many stitches. uh, I didn't break any bones as a child, but uh, I had so many stitches that uh, Judy has only one sister, and she heard all the stories that I would tell about you know, growing up bleeding and stories that she says, I don't wanna have any boys. And that she didn't realize that's kind of normal with boys getting hurt, sometimes girls, but especially boys with that. Um, but also growing up, I remember I was fearful of my dad's anger. My dad had, has a lot of anger uh, in his life and stuff from his home uh, growing up in different things. And so as growing up, it was okay for my dad to show anger, but it was not okay for me or us kids to show emotion or anger response to that. And so in a sense, I ended up suppressing that in terms of kind of submerging that. And uh, so later on, after I got married, um, it's interesting when you get married and when you have kids, issues that that are deep down in your life, marriage has a way of surfacing those things. And then also when you think you got it together and then kids come along. I mentioned last year I spoke on Father's Day. I became a father on Father's Day. Um, you know, Judy was saying, you know, I think it was either before or after the delivery, she says, oh, I didn't get you a card for Father's Day. I said, you're in the hospital. You know, you're giving birth. I said, this is, you know, good enough. You know, very conscientious. Judy's not here today, by the way. She's, she's not feeling well, uh, but maybe she can listen to the, to the message later on, so. But I said, that, that's okay. I remember the next day, um, uh, a couple days when it was our, our time to take the baby home. Now, when you're in the hospital, uh, it's different times how long you're in the hospital. In different countries, maybe it's longer, less, or different things. But while we're in the hospital those few days for our first child, uh, everything's new. New responsibility, you know, you're caring for this uh, new little one. And I remember putting it in the car seat. Back then, you only had one size car seat. One car seat, size fits all. And, you know, the baby's only this big, and the car seat's about this big, you know. And you know, she kept falling, you know, down, our daughter and stuff. And I turned to the nurse. I said, does it come with an instruction manual? Because, you know, when you're in the hospital, all you have to do is ring the button. The nurse would come. But then now, it's our responsibility to take this little one home. So we had that. So... Interesting enough, when you have your own children, I found out that sometimes some of these anger issues kind of came out, and sometimes they surprise me, because being a parent, it, it's tough at times, and God uses, in fact, there's a book written that how children disciple the parents. You know, we disciple and build into their lives, but they're surfacing thing, God's using marriage, he's using our kids to kind of to, to, uh, refine us and sharpen us in many ways, so. My dad and I, we did grow closer over the years where we would be able to say that we love each other, we hug, we could hug each other and different things. Uh, but there was one thing that I always was looking for my father that I've never heard him say. And that's, you know, dad, you know, that he would say that I'm proud of you. And maybe that's his generation growing up or just a lot of times men don't, don't say those things. And I think a lot of us long to hear that from our father, our mother, but especially our dad, that I'm proud of you in terms of what you're doing and stuff. In fact, you know, Jesus even needed to hear that at his baptism in Matthew 3, 17, you know, Jesus and God said to Jesus, This is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. So I think all of us yearn to have that affirmation in our lives. And a number of counselors and some other pastors that I know I'm talk to uh, Robert Lewis is one of uh, the pastor. We went to his church many years, living in, in Little Rock, Arkansas. He's an author of Men's Fraternity. He would talk about how men would come to him um, long after their, the, uh, their father had passed away. And uh, they're still trying to prove that, trying to get that acceptance in, in those things. So it's really important to have those. In his book, uh, Dennis Rainey's book, it's called The Tribute. I don't know if you've ever seen this before. Uh, This is a book that uh, Dennis is the, uh, the president of Family Life, the organization that we work with here in China. But this book was designed where Dennis, his father died at a very early age, and he didn't have an opportunity to affirm his father. Usually a tribute is something after the funeral or during the funeral, you're telling about that. But he says, what if we could write a tribute to our parents while they're still alive and present it to them? And this book here is really unique. Um, I've read this, Judy's read this. We both have done tributes for our parents. Uh, we wrote it to them. Uh, we gave it to them, read it to a, during during Christmas time, and it was a really emotional time, but it was a way of blessing. Even, even if you're coming from a difficult background and stuff like that, because there's a lot of examples in here that Dennis uh, and even Robert had a, a difficult, Robert Lewis had a difficult uh, father relationship, so. But this is an opportunity, in a sense of, of writing a tribute, uh, and processing that in our relationship uh, with our parents. I'm so glad I did that because uh, Judy and I—we've been over here in Beijing now for about five and a half, five five and a half years, and. Uh, um, Three years ago, Judy's dad passed away. We were at a conference in Thailand. We got the word that his, her dad died suddenly of a heart attack, and we had to quickly fly back at that point. And so we're glad that we had those opportunities, both Judy giving a tribute to her, her parents and then, and then for my parents as well. Um, this past spring, um, the end of February, March, um, and April, were probably the most difficult times that I have walked through in my, my life, in a sense. Um, right after, uh, during uh, the Chinese New Year, Judy was back uh, visiting her mom. Her mom's 83 years old. Uh, she was back visiting her, helping her uh, take care of her and stuff, uh, back for her birthday and stuff. And then right after uh, Chinese New Year, uh, I got a call from my sister that my dad uh, suffered a uh, kind of a massive stroke. My parents live... They winter in Florida in the southern part of the U.S. for the wintertime, and then during the summertime, they go back to their home in, in, uh, in Ohio in the north at that point. And so my sister called me and just explained that um, the, the stroke uh, actually compounded a condition that my dad's had for the last three years. See, My dad has dementia, uh, and for, for those of you who don't know what dementia is, it's a short-term memory loss that progressively gets worse and worse is related to Alzheimer's and stuff. And so my dad's had this condition. Well, having this stroke really compounded things to the point that my sister was saying, emergency. And so I, could hop, I ended up hopping on the, the next plane to get there as quick as possible. Uh, Judy was still in, um, out in Kansas, visiting her mom at that point. So I flew back, flew down to Florida. And the situation was definitely in a crisis mode. Uh, my father was in the hospital. They gave him a drug that he, he got his arm back, his leg back, his speech back. Uh, I think it's something called like a clot buster. If, you're, if you get that drug within uh, 24 hours or a certain window, uh, it ends up clearing that. But the, the stroke ended up impacting the dementia to the point my dad's behavior became totally unpredictable, totally irrational and, and um, very difficult. Uh, my dad, his anger would just pop out all over. And it, in a sense, it wasn't him. It's was like something just took took him over. And my mom, you know, bless her heart, she just, you know, she couldn't take care of him anymore. It was at a crisis. We realized they couldn't live alone anymore at that point. A week later, I, we took my dad up to the doctor's appointment. And in the doctor's office, uh, he had an episode where uh, his irrational behavior was just off the wall, just uh, unpredictable, it wasn't himself. Uh, What happened is he ended up accusing me of a whole bunch of things that weren't true and stuff, and all these phobias and fears were were, were coming and and stuff. It's kind of like the stress and going to the doctor's office, and I don't understand it all. But what happened shaked me to the core. It was probably the deepest thing that hit inside me at this point, where my dad, who are you know, i've always been afraid of his anger growing up ever since a little boy now i'm facing all this anger and uh you know it's hard to to kind of disassociate that it's not really personally he's attacking but he but he is you know you can't change your feelings in, in a sense at that point point. and so we continued the doctor's office the doctor was surprised uh and then we realized we needed to get them out of florida move them back to his own doctors and stuff you know while we're driving home about 20 minutes later my dad was just saying, like, oh, that was a nice doctor's visit. You know, it was like nothing ever happened. It was like Dr. Jekyll, Mr. Hyde, you know, type of situation. And um, so we get to their house and stuff, and, you know, I'm just shaking, you know, realizing what's going to happen is is, is this going to be the moment my dad's a nice time where, you know, he'll pray over the lunch meal, or it's just going to be the, like the Dr. Jekyll or uh, Mr. Hyde, I guess he's the bad guy, right? Dr. Well, one of. Anyway, so. You know, at that point, um, I just told my dad, and I, I looked into his eyes, and I said, Dad, no matter what happens, I want you to know I will always love you. At that point, I broke down. And. Uh, I'm not the kind of person that, that gets emotional cries. I'm, I'm kind of more your steady, kind of suppress emotions and growing up and stuff. But I bawled like a little child on his shoulder. Now the thing is my, my dad didn't realize what was happening or I, I don't think he was cognizant of the fact of, of what was happening there. And so in a sense, it's like I'm losing my dad. In fact, they say Alzheimer's and dementia, they kind of call it like a living death. They're not dead yet, but their personality is going, going on that. So we realized as we moved my parents uh, back to uh, Ohio where their house is, uh, their living ho- their home and their house there was not really livable. There's some circumstances I can't get into um, that my dad needed 24 uh, seven care. He needed professional help. My mom uh, could no longer take care of a house. She needed to get into an assisted living place. It was just kind of a crisis situation at that point. So after a consultation with my parents' doctor and their advice and uh, even some legal advice and different things, we, we realized that my dad needed to be uh, put into a, a memory care facility. Now, the interesting thing is my dad is a, um, a uh, what do you call it? a veteran. So they have a top quality veterans place for him. And so I one of the most difficult things I had to do is walk my dad into that facility, absorbing all of his anger he, he kept walking, but he had all that anger and stuff on that. And he is doing better. My mom has now moved into an assisted living place. In fact, I want to really uh, sing praises to Judy because she stayed back for another month in the U.S. I had to come back the day after I put my dad in um, because we had conferences and trainings here in, in China. But she stayed for another month helping my mom move and getting her all set up on that. So I really appreciate Judy um, for doing all that so and just kind of in conclusion here uh, my parents are in a better situation uh, I guess their their health is both deteriorating but they're in a safe and in a good place my mom's close by five minutes away she's over there visiting him on a, on a, many times on a visit but you know Jonathan stood with his dad at the end of a battle even though all the difficulties he had he still chose to honor his dad and I'm glad that I had a chance to do a tribute to my dad when he, he was more cognizant of that fact. And I, I try to remember those good memories to have on that at that point. And so what I wanna do is just close, uh, close in prayer and just pray for us. And then I think Rick's gonna finish up here, so. Father, um, I just thank you that you are the Heavenly Father and your love is demonstrated beyond that we can comprehend. And Father, you know some of us, you know our family backgrounds, you know where we were born, you know the difficult relationships that maybe some of us have growing up, um, you know, with some of the parents we had. And Father, I just wanna pray for, for each and every person here that, that we can look to you as the perfect heavenly Father. And as, as Jonathan, we can still continue to honor our earthly parents and reaching, um, reaching out to them and honor them Thank you that we can even start a new generation in terms of new principles. So, Father, I just thank you that we can call you Father. In Jesus' name, amen.